has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. This is the word of the Lord. And you may be seated. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this passage of scripture, we're not encountering uh, an Encyclopedia Britannica article that we mine for truth nuggets or data. We are encountering your word to us, creator of the universe. You've spoken to us. And so we pray that we would take a posture of humility, that you would give us a posture of humility, and that your word would penetrate our hearts and that we would respond properly. I pray even that your word would... um, Do what your word does, Uh, recreate, transform, that we might leave changed this morning as a result of hearing your word, the proclamation of the gospel, sacraments, all of the things that we're doing, that they would be indeed transforming, and we ask that in the name of Christ, amen. So we are in a section of scripture, of John's gospel here. Uh, This is called the Farewell Discourse. It's several chapters. Uh, Jesus gave, you'll remember, he gave his last lecture to the world, the last last sort of teaching of his public ministry. And now he's, he's had supper with his disciples. He's washed the feet of his disciples. Judas Iscariot has left, and now he's with his disciples, um, teaching them, extended, like long chapters of teaching. This is, you might think of this as Jesus' last lecture to his, to his disciples. And last week, if you look at the very end of chapter 14, if you've got your Bibles open, he says, rise, let us go quickly. They left the upper room, and likely, they're, they're, they're now, I believe, they're in the Garden of Gethsemane. They've gone to the Kidron Valley, and they're in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so fittingly, Jesus takes up a metaphor. They're surrounded by plants plant life. And he says to them, I am the way, or I'm the vine, I'm the vine. And he gives us this powerful picture. He tells his disciples, abide in me, bear fruit. The father will be like a farmer tending to the vine. And this this metaphor that Jesus gives, it's powerful and it is rich. So what I want us to do this morning is to chew on it. And we're going to kind of organize our reflection around three, three points. The root, the root, the cutting, and the loving. Those are the three points. The root, the cutting, and the loving. And you'll see the title is Abide in Christ. That wasn't us trying to be clever with the two T's. That's just a mistake in the title there. But Abide in Christ, the, the root, the cutting, the loving. So, the vine. It's a major motif in the Bible, major picture and image. And regularly, the vine represented in the Old Testament, Israel. Israel. Listen to what Psalm 80 says. Psalm 80, verses 8 through 11. You turn there if you like. 
uh, it says, you, God, you brought a vine out of Egypt. Remember the Exodus? You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it, right? The book of Joshua. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and it filled the land, right? The book of Judges, uh, the United Monarchy, right? Saul, David, Solomon, the Israel rises, it grows. Verse 10 of Psalm 80, the mountains were covered with the shade of this vine, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and it shoots to the river. The vine of Israel spread through the whole land, blessing it. But there's a problem. And and by the way, the prophet Hosea, the prophet Ezekiel, the prophet Isaiah, the prophet Jeremiah, they all pick up on this vine image that Israel is the vine. But there's a problem, a big problem. And the problem is this. This vine is no good. It produces no no, no, no good fruit. Listen to what the prophet Jeremiah says. We could go to many places where it speaks of the fruitlessness of this vine, but Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 21. I planted a choice vine, Israel, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? Israel, you were planted as a vine to be a blessing to the nations, to produce fruit that the nations could take and enjoy. But you've become degenerate. You've become like a wild vine. You're not, you're no good as a vine. You're fruitless. So now Christ stands in the dark, in a garden, before his disciples, and he says, verse 1, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Jesus says to them, I am the real Israel. I am the life source. I am the conduit of blessing to the world. Frederick Bruner, one of the commentators, translates it like this. I am the real root of the matter. I'm the real root of the matter. Aren't we all looking for the root of the matter? Isn't that what, like, what is it? This is the root of the matter. What is it that I can base my life upon? That's the question. If we're looking for the root of the matter, that's the question. What is it that is a foundation for my life? What brings me joy, zest in life? It's the Christmas season, uh, you know, Advent, Christmas, uh, Christmas the, the culture says uh, Christmas season, the Christian calendar says Advent, and then Christmas comes at December 25th, um, but it's, it's Christmas season, um, and I remember as a kid getting, actually as early as September, waiting for the, the, the JCPenney's Christmas catalog to arrive in the mail, and, and it was the pre-runner was kind of, the precursor was the, the Halloween costumes that we would look at. But then once Halloween was passed, it was all Christmas prep in that catalog, circling the G.I. Joes and the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And we, 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 we thumbed through that. We were all in on the catalog. And as a kid, my belief was the root of the matter were toys. That's where it was at. If I could get the toys of my dreams, then I could have the full life as a child. Is that the root of the matter? Is the root of the matter buying things, right? A new car, a new phone, new clothes, a culture, a culture of consumption thinks that it is. Is the root of the matter sexual freedom and fulfillment? Many in our culture believe so. Is the root of the matter sports? 
or music or food or family or America or a strong military or a fat savings account? Is that the root of the matter? Is that what, we, is that what I build my life upon? Jesus says, in a fresh and compelling way, I am the vine. I am the real root of the matter. So what what do we do as a result of that? Verse 4, look at what he says. Abide in me. Pretty simple. Abide in me. Now the word abide there, we don't use that word a whole lot. Uh, We probably think about it as as meaning like I abide by the rules. Um, I try to follow. I try to keep the rules. But actually it has an even older meaning, which, which is to dwell, to house, to make a home in. You've heard of the word abode. It's the, it's the same root word, abide, abode. You abide in an abode, right? You dwell. And, and Jesus is saying, make your home in me. He's, been, he's said this all throughout this discourse to the disciples. Make your home in me. Now he's shifting, though, from a literal home, right? I mean, like, I'm, I make a, a home for my disciples and you will dwell with me. He's already said that. But now he's shifted the, the image to the vine. So, back, back to the question, what's the real root of the matter? If whatever you believe the root of the matter is, that's where you're going to make your home. If you believe the root of the matter is sports, you're going to have ESPN running all the time. You're going to be involved in 15 fantasy leagues. Your emotional state will be dictated by wins and losses. That's how you know that you're abiding, you're dwelling, you're living in sports, if, if, if you abide in consumption, then you, uh, you buy things. That's what you do. And you're not just buying the things you need. You're buying an image. You're buying a symbol that is going to speak volumes to the world that you worked harder than the rest. And you've arrived and you matter. That's what it means to abide in, in consumption and buying things. But here's the thing. There's no rest in sports or consumption. These things demand, and they demand more. And they really don't matter either. I mean, I bet maybe 3% of us can can say who won the last four World Series or who won the last five college national football championships. It's just forgettable. It's It's not a place to dwell. Christ is saying, dwell in me. Dwell in me. These canopies that we build, that we dwell in, like consumption and sports and music and the, whatever it is, they don't, they don't provide rest and they don't last. Christ is saying, abide, dwell in me, make your home in me. And then look at verse 4 again. He says, abide in me and I in you. And again, it's this mutual abiding, this mutual indwelling. And he, he said it already. He said a few weeks ago, I'm, I'm going up to heaven. I'm going to make a home for you on my father's estate. I'm going to prepare it for you. I'm going to take you there myself to the home. And then he says, later, I'm going to dwell in you. And the father's going to dwell in you. And the spirit whom I will send, the comforter, he will dwell in you. It's this mutual indwelling. And Jesus is making the same point with a different image, a different metaphor, the vine. Abide in me and I in you. Now look at verse 4 again. He says, as the branch 
cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can't do anything. Christ is saying what he's been saying throughout the whole gospel. I am the only way to live life. I am life. All all life depends upon me. I am the creator. To live outside of me is to consign yourself to death and fruitlessness. A fruitless life. I mean, what is the purpose of a vine branch? It's to bear fruit. Vine branches don't do anything but bear fruit. They're not good for anything. The prophet Ezekiel recognizes this and says, look, a fruitless vine branch can't even make a peg to secure a tent or a peg to hang a pot. A vine branch, unlike a tree branch that falls to the ground, you can at least make a peg out of it or whittle some little walking stick. A vine branch is worthless apart from the fruit. And Jesus says, if you don't bear fruit, there's no purpose. There's no, there's no purpose to, to, to your life. Which brings us to the second point. So that's, that's the root, right? Christ is the root of the matter, therefore abide in him. Now the cutting, the cutting. And this is a sober warning that Jesus gives. And by the way, I'm, I'm charged, my uh, charge, you, you heard it if you were here a few weeks ago, um, is, to, is to, in part, preach these scriptures. We believe there is power, that this is truth, that, that this word of God is our authority. So we don't come to it, like I said, like with an analytic mindset of like, okay, I got to understand what it says, mine it for truth. We come to it as a humble servant coming to the word of God, the king of the universe. And we come with us with the willingness to submit ourselves to it. That's the response. And so sometimes we come up against parts of scripture that we may not necessarily like that may be difficult for us. God's judgment or God's sexual ethic or, God, or whatever it is. And here we have this sobering warning. Um, what Jesus says, verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, the farmer, the vine dresser, takes away. And actually, the, the Greek there is actually literally cuts off. The, the farmer, father, cuts off fruitless branches. And then look at verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away because of the fruitlessness, like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and they're thrown into the fire and they are burned. Right? This is a very sobering word. Remember uh, Judas, just hours ago, left, left the room to do what he was to do to betray the Lord. Judas was no longer abiding in Christ, but instead is abiding in financial gain. And so he leaves. Remember how John describes it? He leaves, the door shut behind him, and and, and it was night, John says. It was night. Judas is literally in the dark, but figuratively he is, as he moves away from Christ the vine, he is in darkness. He's a branch cut off, from the vine, and he will, body and soul, wither in a matter of days as he left Christ and is in the darkness now. 
But there's another, so that's the cutting off, but there's another type of cutting. Look, look, at, what he, look at verse 2 again. And every branch that does not bear fruit, the Father prunes, that it may bear more fruit. And actually, the, the Greek there literally is cuts back. So there's a little play on words. Jesus says, fruitless branches are cut off. Fruitful branches are cut back, are pruned. There's fruitless branches that are cut, cut off and they're tossed in the burn pile. And there are fruitful branches that are not cut off, but cut back. They're pruned. And pruning entails difficulty, doesn't it? It entails suffering. It, it entails uh, confusion, even. Have you, have you ever seen a pruned tree? I mean, I've, I remember driving through our neighborhood, and I drove past a tree and had the double take. and like, what happened to that? It looked like a bunch of monkeys with chainsaws got a hold of it and just like went to town. It looked awful. Just these little stubs sticking up. It didn't even look like a tree. What's going on? It was being pruned. It was Actually, there was a design to it. It didn't make sense in the moment, but give it a few months, maybe a season, and boom, there's fruit. The tree looks good. It has good shape. It's the pruning worked. And so it is with the pruning of the Father in our lives. Right? It... it it may not make sense at the time. It will feel difficult. There will be suffering involved, but it is to produce more fruit. Think about Joseph's life. Remember Joseph? We looked at him back in the summer. Remember God's pruning in his life? Remember Joseph, this brash, arrogant little brother? And for 20 years, he's a slave. He's sold by his brothers into enslavement. He's a slave, he's a prisoner. But what is, it made, looking at it, it made no sense, did it? It didn't make any sense. It looked weird. It looked irregular. It didn't look like it was supposed to be. But God was working on it. God was pruning Joseph. And he emerged from that time of suffering a changed person. That's what pruning does. He bore fruit for the nations. He saved the whole world in a famine. Humbly serving, loving his brothers, forgiving his brothers. Was God pruning him, and the result was a beautiful thing. Now, there, there's a question. So, all of us are cut. We're either cut off or we're cut back. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, the question, though, I, I know that you have in your mind is what if I'm clipped and tossed to the burn pile? How can I know if I'm clipped for fruit or for the fire? Am I, am I, am I being pruned or pitched in my suffering? Now, our hearts are hardwired to think of the answer in terms of law, right? In terms of the law. If I'm not bearing much fruit, then I must clench my fist, you know, and exert so that fruit like pops out of my life. But that's not what Jesus is saying. Paul Tripp gives a really good picture, I think. He talks about in his backyard, there's this tree. It's a rotten apple tree. Every year it bears rotten apples. And he says, let's just pretend that I tell my wife, I'm going to go fix the tree today. And so he goes and he goes to the hardware store and he buys a staple gun. He goes to the grocery store. He buys like three dozen beautiful, red, delicious apples, shiny, sparkling. And he goes out to the tree. He knocks down all the rotten apples and he staples those new apples to the tree. And then he tells his wife, let's just imagine... Look, I fixed it. It's done. For us to think that what Jesus is prescribing here is, 
you know, us to just exert and produce fruit on our own is like stapling apples to a, to a rotten apple tree. It's not, that's not what Jesus is saying at all. He is saying we don't generate fruit. Jesus' point is, and the, the lesson from the history of Israel is, apart from Christ, apart from the Spirit's work in our lives, we cannot bear fruit. We are degenerate in our fruitfulness. Dane Ortland puts it like this. There are two ways to live the Christian life. You can live for the heart of Christ, or you can live from the heart of Christ. You can live for the smile of God, or you can live from it. You can live for your union in Christ, or from it. You see, we read these words of Jesus, and our law-minded hearts think, well, then I better, I better start doing these things for the heart of Christ. I better start doing these things for the smile of God or for our union in Christ. But what, what, what Jesus is saying here is, no, you do it from me. You abide in me, rest in me, and the fruit comes apart from your own power. It just comes. Dwell more deeply in Christ. Lean more heavily into the, into the work of Christ, not your own works. That's what Jesus is saying. And remember the context. We talked about this last week. we got to keep in mind this, the context of this whole discourse to the disciples. Jesus has said, the commands of Christ begin with Jesus' command to be washed by him. To be washed by him. Remember Peter's response? Peter's response is our response. Never, Lord. Uh, you don't work for me. I work for you. I wash your feet. That's how this is going to work. And Jesus says, Jesus tells Peter, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. You can't abide by me. If I don't wash you, it has to be my work for you, not your work for me. So abiding, dwelling in Christ means resting in Christ, resting in his work, resting in his washing. In fact, he alludes to the washing in verse 3. Look at verse 3. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Let me try to push this further just a little bit. Think about the image that Jesus is using here. Dwelling in him. Live, live abide in me. Think about, think about a home. What is a home if not a place of rest? A place where you can wear your PJs. And you don't have to put on makeup. It doesn't matter how you look. You can sleep in. You can sleep well in your home, better than any other place in your home. A home is a place of rest. If all of our abiding in Christ relied on our fruits apart from Christ, abiding in Christ would be like abiding in a perennial high school tryout. Can you imagine how miserable that is? Always feeling watched, always feeling like every move you're either going to make it or, or, or break or not make the cut. That's not what Jesus is calling us to. He's saying there's rest in me. So come home is what he's saying. So come home. Listen to how Leslie Newbigin puts it. Abiding in Jesus means a renewed decision to say this. What Christ has done on the cross is the basis, the starting point, the context of all my thinking and deciding and doing. The work of Christ on the cross, abiding in him means 
that the work of Christ on the cross is the basis for all of our thinking, deciding, and doing. And he says this even here. He says, the fruit, the fruit, your fruit will be a, in part a result of prayer. Verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And then again, verse 11, at the end, Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full, right? Abiding in Christ means resting in Christ, making our home in him. And that's the kind of thing that brings joy. The high school tryout doesn't bring joy. It brings anxiety, but he's, he's inviting us home. So as Newbigin says, we continually decide that Christ and his work on the cross is the basis, the starting point, and the context for all of our thinking, deciding, and doing. That's what it means to abide in him. So we've talked about the root. We've talked about the cutting. There's a good cutting, cutting back, and there's a bad cutting, cutting off. Now there's a final point, and that is the loving the loving. And this is Jesus kind of explaining the type of fruit we can expect to bear. Look at verse 12. This is my commandment. He said it already. That you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. And that's the command. In a word, very briefly, love one another. That's the fruit. But it's not out of our own out of our own hearts. It's abiding in Christ. You can't give what you don't have. You can't give what you don't have. And Tim Keller gives a helpful picture. He talks about the philanthropist principle. You know, how, how, how can a philanthropist give millions and millions of dollars to these causes? And the answer is, they're drawing from billions and billions of dollars. That's how they can give millions of dollars because they're drawing from a deeper reservoir of wealth. And so it is with love. Our connection to Christ and his love for us in, 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 in the cross is consequential. My youth pastor used to say, if a teaspoon of arsenic goes into your body, there's gonna be an impact. You're gonna die. If the God of the universe, who is love, comes in, that's what Jesus has been saying. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit, they're all dwelling in you. There will be a consequence. There will be love that, that, that issues forth from us. And so we take our little love buckets and we splash the water around to a world that needs it. And we go back and we draw, we're drawing from the ocean of Christ's love. That's the only way we can love. It's from his love. And so as we're changing diapers or tutoring uh, kids at a school or loving our spouses or honoring our boss or giving flour to a neighbor and being inconvenienced in the process or um, treating our clients and our customers in a way that serves their best interests, not the way that's going to get us the most money. As we do all of these things, these are the ways in which we love others. And it's drawn from his, it's again, 
it's not for the love of the Father and the Son. It's from the love of the Father and the Son. So that's the fruit. Now, one final reflection. What, let's think about just the vine, uh, literally, for a second. What is the fruit of the vine? It, the fruit of the vine is grapes, and ultimately wine, eventually. In fact, Psalm 104 speaks of the wine, the, the, the fruits of the plant burst forth, and there is wine that gladdens the heart of man. Right? Wine, um, the fruit of the vine, is a gift to humanity. There's a German Christian, uh, Gisela Kreglinger, who who's, has written extensively about wine, just a reflection on wine and the process and how it works. And one of the things she says is, um, she says, wine is subtle, and you must learn to be attentive to it in order to savor it. And her point is, because wine is, it, it takes time to appreciate, it has to be attended to, and it's kind of like the antidote for our age, because we just zip through life frenetically moving, we don't slow down. And wine, like poetry, wine forces you to slow down, to savor, to stop. Sarah and I were at a vineyard a few years ago, and the, the vine dresser, the, the farmer, the person that had the vineyard, was talking about the crop of grapes that they had just harvested, and it was explaining that it had been a very difficult season for those grapes. They had, they had, in other words, the grapes had suffered a lot because there was an extended period of drought, and then it was like flooding torrential rains, and it was this bad mix that really puts the grapes through a lot and causes them to suffer. And somebody asked, well, what, what does that mean for the wine? You know, because the wine is just all, everything plays into the wine. So how does that affect the wine? She said, that makes the best wine. The more the grapes suffer, the better the wine is. The sweeter the wine is, she said. Isn't that interesting? That that's built into creation? That the more the, the grapes suffer, the better the wine is? Christ is the vine, and he is, about, he is about to suffer, hours away from his suffering. The living vine of the world is about to be pinned to a tree for execution, a cross. And that tree of death for the world becomes a tree of life, a life-giving vine that the whole world can tap into, can abide in, and find fruitfulness. And his fruit is extending. Works of love are being extended through the nations, through Christ and his church. And like wine, if you, if you attend to it, if you look closely, you can see the fruits of his love all around, especially in Christ's church. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your, your word. We thank you that it's a word that is encouraging, that what you ask is not us flexing our muscles and producing fruit, but simply to come to you in weakness and hang around and, and, and abide, dwell in you. So we're so thankful for that invitation, and we pray that you would, as we abide in you, that you would produce fruit in our lives. We pray in Christ's name, amen. We have a response, and that is the confession of the apostles.